This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. Dr. Amanda Rogers is an independent scholar, artist, cultural commentator, activist, and photographer. She is an internationally recognized expert on the rhetoric, propaganda, and communication strategies of transnational non-state armed groups, from ISIS to neo-Nazis. Dr. Rogers has consulted for a variety of institutions, including the United Nations and the U.S. Department of State, and her photojournalism, cultural commentary, and political analysis has appeared in Smithsonian Magazine, Al Jazeera, The New York Times, The Intercept, CNN, the BBC, and beyond. We're thrilled to have her with us today. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thank you for having me and thank you for your patience and <laughs> me having to reschedule. I'm really, really stoked to finally uh, get the chance to talk to you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Me, too. So you've studied many forms of terrorism and extremism from jihadis to white supremacists to Christian terrorists. And we can allow for as much overlap as we need to here. But what got you interested in covering these movements and people? Well, it's kind of a difficult question for me because it's not so much what got you interested as it is um, the accident of, of my biography on one hand. Um, and what I mean by that, just very, very briefly. So I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, um, basically at the height of what's been called the abortion wars. And an extended relative with Dr. George Tiller, the clinician that was eventually killed in 2009, that, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the Bill O'Reilly's Tiller Tiller Baby Killer discourse. Right, right. So that was my uncle by marriage. And I didn't really have a sense that those events that were unfolding in Wichita at the time could be considered terrorism until decades later. So that's kind of one of the avenues that got me started on this. But it never was something I wanted to do as a career at all. I'm actually an artist and I wanted to do you know, art-related things with Middle East and Islamic culture, but I have incredibly bad luck. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I ended up being all across North Africa at the year before, during, and after the so-called Arab Spring. Ah. I had a bunch of friends that were democracy activists, and I always joke about how the smell of gas is soldiers for me in the morning. Uh. So I can't, I'd like run towards it. It's really probably stupid but it's just what i do but that it's never so much um, an interest as it is like an ethical and a, a personal compulsion to work on issues of injustice and marginalization and that's come up in my academic career but i think things exploded in terms of making me focus on political violence as a, a career topic also just personal activism stuff. right 
when two of my friends were actually kidnapped doing journalism and they were eventually traded and ended up in the hands of the group that is now known as ISIS and they were executed. They were the, the two first Americans on the, the infamous uh, beheading videos. Oh, geez. Yeah, it was, it was really, it was tough for a number of reasons, wow. but I think one of the, the toughest parts and the most beneficial in terms of the work that I'm doing now, and I don't mean beneficial in the personal sense, like career-wise, but beneficial in terms of the work itself, is encountering those videos and processing, you know, all of the emotions that I had about them. And I actually watched the videos. Right. And that's a long story because I didn't really understand what I was seeing ahead of time. But it, it really upset me because I... I had this thought that, uh, you know, like, like, go ahead, carpet bomb the shit out of Syria. I don't care about civilian casualties. I don't care who dies. And that's that's insane for, for me to have. It's anathema to everything that I stand for and, you know, who my friends and family and loved ones are. And the fact that it crossed my mind at all was so uncomfortable for obvious reasons, right? But right. I'm a big believer in when something is very uncomfortable to you that you're feeling, you need to stop and examine it and try to get to the root of why, because there's a huge lesson there. And so in my professional work, I kind of was at this ethical watershed moment where I was like, all right, since I work on representation and questions of, you know, the political in the broader Muslim world, whatever someone wants to define that as, basically, if I don't speak to how effective this propaganda is, then I don't really stand for what I say that I stand for. And if I do, then am I making a career off my, my friend's murders, you know? So it was a really tough moment, but I just, eventually I I decided I have to confront, I have to confront it publicly and I have to do so in my professional work because there's a lesson here. And the lesson to me is what the hell is John Q pub, whatever going to think if I'm someone that, you know, has spent my adult life living in these areas and I have that kind of reaction for a split second. Yeah. So I, I have a responsibility to speak to how propaganda and persuasion and fear mongering really work and work in ways that people don't anticipate. So, for example, like the videos that my friends were killed in, I think it's a good illustrative point. So videos deliberately edited to be not bloody so they would circulate across media more quickly there's a distinct difference between the ways in which um, the western hostages were executed and the way that they killed you know masses of shia and masses of middle eastern christians and so forth basically it was more one-on-one high production anyway the point being it was really evident to me that these films were meant to elicit such a strong desire for revenge right. to bait people into supporting an all-out war. And just using me personally, I had to recognize that what my reaction meant and in the broader significance of what ISIS was trying to do, essentially, they're recruiting their opponents into being force multipliers for them without their opponents knowing you know right you wrote a twitter thread on this um a year or so ago i think it was and you kind of explained it very well in the idea that this isn't what they're showing at home this is what they're trying to do to get you so angry and so upset that you will sign off on something like that and you used your own example very effectively of like i have 
friends and relatives in these countries. I know people over there. I'm very familiar with all of this. And I was so mad that I wanted to blow the place up after this was all there. Why? Because that was the effect that these people were going for. They weren't doing this to try and do anything besides make that point. And then they put everybody kind of at a point where they have to make a choice as a result of this. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the scariest thing to me is you, you're so locked into your emotional response that you can't be rational and political when it comes to a piece of propaganda because, you know, in your mind, you're too educated to fall for this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Of course we are. This is what people always think. You know, there's a, I think there's a bigger danger sometimes with people that do know more about particular conflicts because they think they're above the propaganda. Right. And, you know, it's it's sad and it's scary because the whole MO behind the way that ISIS portrays themselves, I hate these terms like Western and, you know, because they don't shake out in reality. And I have to say so-called. So the, the presumed Western non-Muslim audience, they released those execution videos for you know, the whole point is to to bait you into wanting to to see them as ultimate monster that you can't reason with that you just have to eradicate because the goal on their end is an apocalyptic war right, basically. Right. So people don't understand that that like there there is a calculus that has gone into putting these films together mm-hmm. and nobody can afford to think that they're immune to propaganda. None of us. I think one thing that a lot of people especially, you know, in this country, even some people that work in this field don't really understand is that there's a real similarity between some of the rhetoric that comes out of the white supremacist side of things and this same rhetoric. It's almost like they want to force people into that same sort of choice and they seem to have like kind of similar goals. Absolutely. Do you think this is just because Americans are slow to get this connection that this is essentially very similar rhetoric, very similar tactics? And why do you think that is? I don't think that Americans are, are worse at this than anyone else. I really don't. The implications of the American response matter more to the world because we have more power. But I don't think that we necessarily are slower to put this stuff together. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Like the propaganda is going to hit differently, obviously, depending on what segmented demographic it's being made for. But say without a shadow of a doubt, like the one of the things that got me targeted by uh, a couple neo-Nazis was talking about precisely this phenomenon and i call it chaotic extremism and what i mean by that is precisely what what you had described where these groups work towards the same end right um and they go intentionally and knowingly and they can't exist without one another and the point is to eradicate isis calls it eradicating the gray zone so basically the way that you achieve this is you do something so heinous and and what people would call barrack, right? And whether that's like a false flag or et cetera, that whoever is reacting and feeling targeted sees absolutely no room for compromise and nothing but monstration on the other side. And so there's no room for coexistence. And I don't mean this in like a, a shit lib kind of a way of, hmm. you know, being in the middle and like talking to your enemies and things like that. What I mean by this is like ISIS deliberately stages attacks in the West knowing that Muslims in the West are going to die and they don't care. Right. And knowing Muslims in the West are going to be blamed. And it makes them happy. Why is this? Because for them, it's eventually, their goal is you attack people in the West and the Westerners will see this as like a Muslim problem. So they're going to be more hostile to Muslims in their countries. And eventually the goal of that is that a Muslim in the West either, and this is ISIS law, 
mine. I hope that's obvious, right, but right. still. Um, but a Muslim eventually has no choice but to either go live under ISIS sovereignty, wherever that may be, or give up everything to do with Islam and assimilate. But at the same time, that won't ever happen because they push me into this like pol- hyper-polarized situation. That's the same thing that transnational white supremacist groups have been trying to do. And they're aware of this from you know the other end of the equation. And it's not just white supremacists or a group like, there's an element here that I think is important to engage with. And it just popped into my head because of the American thing. Right. I think, and I've been saying this for a while, lots of people have acknowledged there's a crisis of the nation state, right? Like Westphalian sovereignty is something that's kind of, um, yeah, basically in crisis. This is the best thing that I can say. But what we've seen that's really unusual, I think, is increasing isolation in communitarian uh, identity movements in different parts of the world that nonetheless operate in these really thorny and messy alliances. So you've got like Marine Le Pen, the National Front in France, mm-hmm. that are taking sides with like Modi and the BJP and the RSS and the Hindu Vata. And all of them are working towards the same end of these like purest communities that could never exist in reality ever right, have existed right. in reality because not how civilizations work but so yeah it's something that i think goes beyond the states and it's it's the zeitgeist right. in a lot of ways happening for about 15 years and over the past it's accelerated and taken off like never before but these groups are aware of it and in for some of them it's very intentional right and yeah i just think with the american connection we have more power in terms of what we do in the world. I don't think we're necessarily more prone to fall for things. We're more comfortable and more apathetic. You know, it's certainly not an American only problem. Okay. So let's talk a little about something a little more, shall we say close to home on this. There was a guy for a number of years that ran a group in Fallbrook, California. His name was Tom Metzger, and his group was known as the White Aryan Resistance. And he died not too long ago. Nobody really misses him all that much, I don't think. He was was active on Twitter a little bit. He had a Twitter account that was kind of, you know, he, he would mouth off periodically. And I think he name searched himself quite a bit. You know, the profile picture that he used to have on his account oh, yes. i was like did you jack your those glasses from bono like I'd, i would call him nazi gramps <laughs> and yeah no i he did name search himself because he would start me on the regular and then he would he would end with tom metzger war.com and yep. if you at the time i think it's archived now but if you click the link it would take you to the white Aryan resistance webpage that was in comic sand so that was just <laughs> Perfect. Just fun little Metzger back. Yeah. I remember that guy had bants because when I was in high school, I was working on a research project that actually required me to call his answering machine. And that guy, about half of it was screeds against the blacks and the Jews, but about half of it was screeds against other leaders in the movement. Like he had a lot to say about David Duke. Always had something to say about David Duke and none of it was nice. Have you you seen the the neo-Nazi nonsense threads that I do? Um, yeah, uh-huh. Because I, I have, like, a, a catharsis thing. There's one that I did that's devoted to David Duke and Metzger's breakup and mm-hmm. the mean girls of the swastika stone age, I think is what I called it. <laughs> yeah. I used one of those bants to get myself blocked by David Duke when I was first on Twitter. It was pretty funny. Like, you know, just oh, mouthed off yeah. about Duke and his interracial porn collection. And I picked that up from Metzger's yeah. machine. And next thing you know, boom, I'm blocked. It was great. <laughs> it was just... 
Duh. If you heard the one, but like I'll send it to you because there's so many. Oh, please do. I've got, I've got like all of these crazy, you know, all all of these documents of interviews and podcasts and and television appearances and things from way back in the day. Right. Um, and like all of the issues of war and everything. So I have a treasure trove of just the worst crap imaginable. That, nice. You know, starring Nazi Gramps. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anything you want to know about his fights with Duke in particular, <laughs> I'm like the TMZ of neo-Nazi oh. bullshit, unfortunately. This is amazing. So he was definitely somebody who had a public image in the 80s because he had appearances on things like the Geraldo show, as well as pretty much any other radio mm-hmm. or TV program that would have him. Yeah. Yep. He was not afraid to clown it up, playing to people's stereotypes of what a Nazi should be. Was this a definite strategy on his part? And if so, what do you think he was trying to accomplish? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you said that because uh, I always try to convince people of this with Metzger. Um, He played both sides of everything at all times. I mean, Metzger is the reason that we are able to have a situation in which, you know, the mother Jones does a profile of Richard's, the the dapper white nationalist or whatever whatever they called him. Right. Part of the, because Metzger and his son John had done the rounds of all these different talk shows, but they would do different like personas in different contexts. So when Metzger would appear on, say, Geraldo, or he would appear on Whoopi Goldberg or the John McLaughlin show, he would do so in a suit and tie, and he would bring on the skinhead thugs with him. And the impact of this visually, you know, and the way that that he engaged in those appearances was, this is like the the white civil rights guy that's right, not as bad right. as these thugs in the street. So on the one hand, the way that he played with the media gave him a sort of credibility, you know, in relationship to like the under, I guess you could say, the yeah, yeah. Head shock troops that people love to talk about. And then on the other hand, especially later in life, after the lawsuit over the death of the Ethiopian student in Portland, right? when a lot of the mainstream and even specialists of extremists, um, they they love to say that Metzger's career ended after he lost that lawsuit, but that's not true at all. Um, it's this point, basically, when you have Louis Thoreau do the documentary on Metzger and he acts like a clown and he's basically everyone's racist grandpa in in the film and you're him like, okay, so he's atrocious, horrible things, but he's completely irrelevant and influential anymore. And that, that was deliberate. Right. Metzger himself would talk about how... He had said that he didn't have anything left to lose after that lawsuit from SPLC. And he'd also said blatantly that he celebrated the verdict because now he had absolutely no incentive to try to pretend to be playing the political. And what he would do is have skinheads. He had clean records, right? They didn't have jail time. He would have basically skinheads with dirty records send their friends to him for back channel discussions and implanting them into operations which is his was his um, undercover infiltration of military and armed forces. So Metzger played it both ways in, in a manner that really paid off for white supremacist organizing. Uh, I think that the the buffoon image is something that he definitely he played, played with purposefully. You mentioned that earlier about Tom Metzger getting these clean skinheads to drop that look and drop the idea of getting swastika tattoos. And he referred to that, I think, as the ghost skin tactic. 
Oh, just to, just to, to clarify real quick, because ghost skin is a term that the only place that I've seen it used um, basically with a, um, like repetition is in FBI documents. Uh-huh. I don't know that that was a, a, ever a term used within the movement. I know it was characterized that way by outside the movement. So how did he refer to it? Have you run across anything on that? Yeah. I mean, there was something that called an apple seed. And um, he makes reference to this on the steps of the Portland courthouse um, after losing the, the C case. And he taught, well, he didn't call it operation discourse, but he had another um, in other places. Uh, what he said on the steps of the courthouse, when a reporter asked him how he was feeling about the verdict, he said he was going to go celebrate. And they asked him why, because, you know, you were just defeated. And he said, this is actually, actually a victory for the movement. And that's why I'm going to go celebrate. And the reporter said, why? You know, you just lost this court case. And how can it be a victory for the movement? And he, he said this really chilling passage that I unfortunately don't remember verbatim. But he said, don't you get it yet? Like, where do you think all the skinheads went? They're in your school boards. They're in your police forces. They're in your military. They're in your schools. They're teaching your kids. The seeds have been planted a long time ago. And so I think that, you know, that he didn't have a specific term as far as who he referred to as like the, the clean people and the not clean people. But the actual program was called Operation Appleseed. And it's been, you know, ongoing and it really like picked up steam after that, that verdict um, in Portland because he, like he said, had no incentive anymore to try to pretend like he wasn't playing both sides of the field. So it, it was deliberate, definitely deliberate, and there was no paper trail on purpose. This is one of the lessons that he had picked up um, from his misadventures with the Klan, and actually it's something that he had a, an axe to grind with Duke about, with the, the keeping records of people's names. He advised some of the people that would go on to become Adam Waffen that they shouldn't participate in Charlottesville because street marches were going to set the movement back, etc., Right. And, you know, he was doing all this back channel stuff the whole time. It wasn't that he tried to convince all the skinheads to give up the swastika tattoos and, and uh, across the board. Right. He just had like a differentiated strategy for who could work in what capacity, if that makes more sense. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Was he one of the defendants in Fort Smith in the Fort Smith seditious conspiracy trial? This is super interesting. Initially, he was named as a member of the order in like a really old FBI affidavit. I can't remember what year. I have a copy of some of it somewhere, but he actually was not one of the defendants at Fort Smith. He was really, really heavily involved, obviously, but he did not end up at Fort Smith himself. I know that was one of the big takeaways that the people who ended up getting prosecuted in Fort Smith, guys like Louis Beam, had as far as like, let's never get together in big numbers like this again. Let's never have these massive rallies because, well, that's part of how they got us on this. And it's very lucky that we didn't all end up going to jail over this one. Well, what's really, I mean, there's so much that's fascinating, I think, about Fort Smith and how it went wrong for the government's case and how, you know, it's, it's odd to say this is someone that absolutely can't stand white supremacy in any of its forms, right? But the government case is really bad and it was, a poor strategy to begin with. Right. So it's easy to see why, why people walk. And I don't say that because I like white supremacists that are violent running around free, you know, 
but it was a lesson in terms of if you're going to prosecute these people, how are you going to go about doing it and proving a conspiracy like the the level that they were trying to prove at Fort Smith? Oh, yeah. But it's interesting that you bring up Beam because one thing that I wish people understood about Beam's performance at Fort Smith, I see a lot of parallels with, and I was tweeting this on January 6th, actually, like the people that are out there in the streets, you know, or at the Capitol right now, if the government goes ahead with sedition charges at some point, they need to look at Fort Smith, right? Because Mm -hmm. one of the ways in which Beam was really effective and managed to get off is by doing this incredible and incredible in the jaw-dropping, not positive sense, this incredible speech about how he was a Vietnam veteran that had sacrificed for his country, using all of this patriotic language that was really resonant with the jurors, right? I mean, he did definitely didn't say, and I, I came back from Vietnam intent on using right. counterinsurgency techniques against the government. But, you know, and then outside, he walks outside, there's like the Confederate monument, right? Right outside. Mm-hmm. So Beam was using uh, the same things that you get now that are used for plausible deniability, like hiding behind the flag and patriotism. It's why so many of these groups, use, like Patriot Fronts, You know, you Mm -hmm. use these supposedly apolitical terms for cover. And I think that's one of the lessons of Fort Smith. But another one that every all the leaders in the white supremacist movement um, got uh, pretty well. And it was compounded after 92 and, you know, Waco and Ruby Ridge and everything. I can't remember the specifics on what date, which thing happened. But I'm sure you're familiar with um, Estes Park and the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous. Right. Yes. Like there was this major movement, major moment in the movement where it was kind of a mainstreaming sort of tactic. We need to focus on things that conservatives will, um, you know, like find common cause with like anti-abortion and the nuclear family. And it was a way of, yeah, going undercover. And it was Pete Peters, the identity preacher that was one of the big leaders of the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous. And Beam was there too. So yeah, there was just a a watershed moment in terms of the way that the white supremacist organizing changed. It definitely didn't disappear, but I think in some crucial and really dangerous ways, it got a lot more effective. Right. Yeah. Beam shows up next to practically every single big event in the 80s and 90s. He's somewhere real close, it seems, when you look at it. So is Metzger, actually. Mm Mm-hmm. They both are, I think, way more influential on what we're seeing today than a lot of people realize because, you know, we just, we don't have the greatest memory as a society. I think we've kind of forgotten about these guys. I I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And this is where I think that your earlier point that I'm super, super thankful for about Metzger playing the buffoon and the clown like, I'm mm-hmm. always trying to tell people, you don't understand the the dangers of dismissing him and his influence like that, because he deliberately no. played that up, so you would dismiss him. And there's a reason that when Brandon Russell was trying to form Adam Wappen, one of the first people he reached out to to hunt down James Mason was Tom Metzger. Right. And this isn't something that even, like, the extremism experts or whatever are aware of, and that's so dangerous, because... Behind the scenes, you know, I I can't speak to Beam because I don't know his, you know, actual behavior and tactics and organizing the very close up and ugly way that I know Metzger's. But yeah, I think that's such a brilliant point of yours. So Well, thank you. But yeah, it definitely is a tactic that these guys use. And, you know, James Mason, to some extent, did it. 
And you could, you could see that when you would see them on TV, like they want the publicity, they want to be able to get this message out in front of people and they don't really care if they look silly. I mean, George Lincoln Rockwell did that. He didn't really mm-hmm. care if he was to look like, oh, ha ha, look at the guy in the Nazi uniform. Well, the right people heard what he had to say and the right people picked up the ball. I'm so glad that you brought this up too, because I forgot to throw it in. Another thing that Metzger did that was really brilliant with the media so you know how he had race and reason, the public access talk show. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that Metzger would do is he would actually have his supporters call in to local stations and complain if his show wasn't being aired and it was a first amendment issue. Right. So he would deliberately cause controversy to get eyeballs and it was his own supporters basically doing false flags. So Metzger's, ways of playing the media in terms of like free speech and first amendment this and blah 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 like false flag that he was laying the groundwork for stuff that you see all the time with now mainstream just run-of-the-mill quote-unquote conservatives right and Metzger had had laid that foundation and so did Beam I think at Fort Smith in a lot of ways yeah definitely and it's really fascinating to look now at where this whole thing has ended up and where these even the mainstream side of MAGA has ended up to some big extent. You've got guys like, you know, Ricky Schiffer a year or so ago who decides he's going to shoot up the FBI office in Ohio. And when they went back and looked at that guy's reading list and they looked back at that guy's history, he wasn't reading James Mason. He wasn't reading Siege. He wasn't reading any of this. He Mm -hmm. was reading mainstream normie conservative stuff. But then you realize Mm -hmm. about a year and a half before that, Milo Yiannopoulos and Michelle Malkin put out a quote unquote America first reading list. And some of the stuff mm-hmm. on that list was like the Turner diaries, Evola, Kaczynski. These are people we thought at one point were edgy conservatives and they're pushing yeah, this, yeah. the worst of the extremist literature yeah. out there. I mean, it's like, look at Steve Bannon, right? And right. who likes Julius Evola more than Steve Bannon for one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Michelle Malkin, too, because I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. I assume you are. I imagine a lot of the listeners will be, but I don't want to make that assumption. So the Oath Keepers fiasco. Basically, when Michelle Malkin launched the whole I'm a proud conservative extremist thing, this was 2009, I want to say, that was in in reaction to basically the the leaking of a memo that that someone at DHS had had done on the recruitment targeting efforts of militias to get more police officers and military in their ranks. Interestingly enough, this is before the Oath Keepers had officially announced their presence as an organization. But um, Daryl Johnson, I think is the guy's name that was at DHS at the time, talks about how the memo had originally leaked by probably an Oath Keeper that was at DHS in the first place. So you look back then and and how did Michelle Malkin react to it by basically laying the groundwork for all of this crap, you know, and then you've got the Oath Keepers at the Capitol. So that's really prescient observation on your part also, I think. Yeah. It really strikes me as like they, have been working very effectively behind the scenes for a number of years to get this stuff out and to get people moved over to a farther and farther extreme point. Like at some point I'm going to write all this up, but like they're trying to essentially recruit what looks like an army of Timothy McVeigh's. Oh, I think that's fair. That's what this looks like from here. Yeah. Is that they want 
a whole radicalized group of people that they can, when they need to be mad at the FBI, they can put a whole bunch of people mad at the FBI and have them do terrorism. Yeah, and then there's plausible deniability, right? Because mm-hmm. what Metzger and Beam were talking about with um, you know, leaderless resistance and the lone wolf thing, this is something else I wish people understood because the lone wolf idea and the leaderless resistance yeah. strategy, it, it's not proof that these guys are disconnected from a movement. That is itself a movement strategy. Mm-hmm. So yes. I think that that's a really great observation because now there's a pool of people that have been primed in all of these different ways behind the scenes by the hardcore white supremacists that in a lot of cases, I think don't even know that they have been primed by the Metzgers nope. and the Beams, you know, and that's, what's so dangerous. But right. That's a real, that's a hell of a way of putting it. I think you're on point beyond there. Well, thanks. I mean, it's definitely a case of like, you look at this stuff for a while and you start to see certain th- patterns just recur. Yeah. And you find yourself thinking like, these people have a vested interest in finding a way to be able to address problems with the FBI that they might have. And boy, they certainly have a lot of people pointed in that direction, ready to do bad things right now, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So pretty terrifying right now. I I could not agree more. Yeah. One more thing that I think is interesting. You mentioned earlier a guy named Pete Peters. Yeah. And he was influential in bringing to the fore an idea known as Christian identity. And there isn't really a whole lot Christian about this. And this is another case where your Twitter stuff was very, very helpful because you had a meme that you made of the idea of like, does Jesus want a race war? (laughs) <laughs> if if you if you are horrified by the question of does Jesus want a race war, it's probably not Christian identity, you know. It's crazy because I I had been explaining what Christian identity movement is for so long that that meme that you saw was me just running into the wall and being like, I cannot make this any simpler. Right. And people still they hear Christian. And this is funny actually because one of the first people to really see the utility in the name Christian identity was actually Rockwell. And Rockwell was an atheist, but he was corresponding mm-hmm. with, um, I can't remember what the guy's name is, but a, a Nazi from you know the Third Reich at the time talking about how the phrase Christian identity is excellent to use because well-meaning white Christians that are concerned about segregation, et cetera, you know, aren't going to realize that it's a, a right. neo-Nazi movement calling to them. And so it's, what's crazy to me now is that it's gone so mainstream, and I don't mean identity per se, but the whole reactionary, like calling someone a, a white person who happens to be a Christian nationalist, there's this impossibility, it seems like, for even people that are critics of Christian nationalism, they can't separate in their minds, like, oh, that's neo-Nazi Christianity because it's white people that are Christian nationalists. Absolutely not. Totally different thing. Right. Very dangerous to use that, like, calling mm-hmm. everyone with the same... But what's interesting about Pete Peters in this is Peters was an identity preacher in Colorado, and he he had given this this sermon called about dropping the identity label and telling Christian identity adherents to just refer to themselves as Christian. Mm-hmm. And he referred to it as being as wise as the serpent. And the whole <laughs> point was, again, like a further mainstreaming of this. But essentially, so what identity Christianity, and this is for people that are going to flip out on me, it always happens 
there's a follow-up meme if you haven't seen it that's just the poster for only uh like all dogs go to heaven and i cross it out and put like only white people go to heaven (laughs) yeah like that's as simple as it gets about christian identity you know Uh basically like jesus doesn't love you if you're not white and being white's not good enough to make jesus love you and let you into heaven that's what they believe yep and this is very different than say just white people who happen to be fanatical christians that's like you know, it's sure. Yeah. You can critique that all you want, but they're not the same thing. And behaving as if they are is very dangerous. Yeah. It's, it's a different trip. Yeah, exactly. But see, so yeah, Christian identity has been one of the most um, influential ideological strains in the American white supremacist movement that very few people understand. And I wish more did. Everyone should read Stuart Wexler's book, by the way, on Christian okay. identity. He's fantastic. It was interesting because, you know, growing up in Spokane, Washington, we had the Aryan Nations around and they were listed in the Spokane phone book and they were listed as Church of Jesus Christ Christian slash Aryan Nations. Slash Aryan Nations, yeah. So that was exactly how they used to refer to themselves. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Like, okay, I'm looking and this looks kind of nice and nice and nice. And if you don't necessarily catch the last couple words there, you're like, oh, they're just Christians. And it's like, not in any sense that you're thinking of, but yeah, yeah, definitely played that up. They definitely like to play the whole, like we, we are the real Christians. And in some cases I remember hearing mm-hmm. them say like, we're the children of Abel. That was one of their big ones was like, we are the descendants of the people who didn't kill their brother at the very beginning. Oh my God. And it was like, okay, okay. I see where you're kind of going with all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's wild stuff. Like you said, a lot of them just, they have gone so far out in this crazy direction that is not even anything resembling Christianity. A lot of it is like what we say to get people in the door or get people to give the ideas a time of day. You know, I wish people would see or like think about, um, if you look at like CI theology alongside of ISIS theology, right? Right. I'm uncomfortable with saying, like, I, I don't think it's, just from like the religious studies perspective or whatever, I, I don't think that I can say like Christian or Christian identity isn't Christianity any more than I could say what Islamic state, so-called Islamic state says that they are. I can't say that they're not Muslim, right? Right, right. The point being in both of these cases, they're definitely on the extreme side of any movement calling itself Christianity or Islam. But the fact of the matter is what's useful in not uh, what do you call it in English? It's sekfiyat in Arabic, but like excommunicating a group, right? Right, right. The danger or the usefulness in not doing that in the discourse is we can point to like, this is what cherry picking in religion does, you know? Mm, yeah. They're both on the, the, the margins and they're good case studies in terms of like a symbiotic perspective that I feel like it's, it's more helpful to not say that they're like, they don't resemble Christianity at all because that's how they're getting new recruits in unwittingly you know what i mean yeah definitely like once you dig they they are a a radically bizarre reading just like isis is a radically bizarre reading of islam for any normal muslim you know but i think if we're too quick in dismissing them as like that part of that group it further uh, like masks them in the kind of cloud that's beneficial to them in terms of recruitment if that makes sense right I like what you said about pointing out how it's an example of cherry picking rather than trying to say those people aren't this. Yeah. That seems to be much more of a a valid criticism because really 
it just, it never seems like it really sticks when it comes from people who aren't necessarily believers. Yeah. Yeah. To say, oh, well, those people really aren't that. It's like, uh, no one really wants to hear that. No one really wants to listen to that. Exactly. And on top of that, I feel like one of the biggest problems with the space of propaganda and persuasion anywhere that we look on any topic is that people are so ready and willing to play the role of God, whether they're atheists or not, in any of this. You know, so the idea that you can, I mean, it applies also to this whole, oh, Muslims aren't real Americans. Neo-Nazis aren't real Americans. What the hell is a real American? You know what I mean? Right. So I feel like that that excommunicating a group when you're trying to delegitimize it can sometimes be more counterproductive, if that makes sense. And I feel like that's a tendency that's so pervasive. Yeah, it's just another like line of why it bothers me to do that, even though I really want to say like ISIS and CI have nothing to do with those religious traditions. Right. Because of where I find value in them, right? But like they do claim it. So what does that mean and how does it help them get more followers, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like if we're really serious about fighting back against this stuff, it behooves us, I think, to find ways to be more effective against against it to people who might yeah. be willing to be convinced about this stuff. And it's really tricky to come at it from that perspective. Yeah. To say, I want to make an impact on this, but I want to make an impact on this with the people who might actually be convinced. I don't want to preach to the choir. I want to preach to their potential choir. Yeah. And I mean, like Twitter X is not conducive to that, right? Like it sucks, but like you're, you're so dead on and it's frustrating because you know, it means, it means that you have to moderate your language and I don't mean moderate your stance, but it means being more strategic with your language and your arguments. Like, to give you an example, something that I've, I've seen on social media that, you know, has gotten me like the, you know, the blue QAnon segment of the supposed oh, yes. left in this oh, country. Yes. Right. Yeah. So something that I've said that's pissed them off um, several times is pointing out things like, you know, tweeting a picture of Ashley Babbitt and saying like, good, I, I'm glad she's dead. Like, may, may there be more of her. You're not helping anything. Right. Nope. But by saying this is this doesn't do anything but like basically solidify the the hagiography of this martyr for the MAGA movement, right? People got mad at me and are like, "Oh, you're you're a terrorist sympathizer, whatever." She was breaking the law. And like, <laughs> regardless, here's where I come down on it: was she unarmed, and should she have been murdered by a police officer without due process? No, I don't think so. Do I agree with what she did? Absolutely, the hell not. However just celebrating her death so um, gratuitously is just creating fodder for the side that these people think that they're opposing. Yeah. So as much as someone might find like schadenfreude in, in what happened to her, you can't be saying that on Twitter. You know, you can't be like pushing that public line. And I understand that there's like an emotional catharsis that goes with that. Right. But it's irresponsible. And I think that's the hardest thing to um, come to terms with in your own head let alone actually practice, mm-hmm. you know, I have a tough time with it, but, but it's so important, you know, you can be as angry as you want at her, but all you're doing is making Jack Posobiec's life easier. Exactly. All you're doing is making these little propagandists like that, that whole quote that was going around from a guy named Sam Hyde, where he's like, they hate you. They want you dead. And they think it's funny. Oh, Jesus. Yes. Sam Hyde. Yeah. Exactly. It's that same concept. And the more you talk about Ashley Babbitt and you circulate memes like that, the easier it's going to be to get that 
line of propaganda to stick. So for sure. And like the it's interesting you bring up Sam Hyde because speaking of propaganda, right? Like Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like every single shoot, like what did they they call yep, like Al Asemia Al Haider if it's an ISIS shooting. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's just uh huh. Yep. Yeah, it's like, you know, the inevitable, really awful joke whenever something like this happens. You know there's going to be a Sam Hyde meme about it, and you're just like, God, get it over with. Fine. I know you're going to do this. Yeah, get it over absolutely. with. This is so awful. And inevitably, there's going to be some idiot reporter that falls for it and gives it even more, you know, play. I know. It's infuriating. Right. It's like, how do you not yeah. know this is going to happen at this point and just be like, okay, everybody just get off the internet until it hits. Okay. Yeah, that's really how I feel so much about a lot of this stuff right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, okay, let's all just turn off our computers for a few minutes, go outside and touch some grass. And when we come back in, we can have this conversation. Okay. But I think, you know, you make a very valid point when you talk about like the outrage being not helpful at all. When you say like, sharing memes of people like Ashley Babbitt and talking about how these people got what they deserved and how, you know, people in red States get what they deserve when they have these people. It's like, this is extremely unhelpful. And I wish people, you know, would figure that out. Oh, for sure. And on that one, I mean, I have to just jump in on that one and be like, like when people talk about the South in, in the ways that you're alluding to, it's enraging for a lot of reasons. Number one, I mean, for one, if you want to look at the history of the contemporary white supremacist underground movement in this country, it's Southern California. It's right here. It's not the South. Uh-huh. It's not the former Confederacy. Right. But also, you're uh-huh. erasing all of the black folks all across the South who are the majority in mm-hmm. a lot of these places getting screwed over and you're saying they deserve it. I'm sorry, but like that, that bullshit shit lib impetus is disgusting and despicable to me on so many levels, not to mention counterproductive. And I understand yep. the anger that people feel, but people need to really need to think about being responsible yeah. with how, how we deal with that in the public space. Cause you know, there's tons of stuff that I won't say on Twitter and I say a lot of things on Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but it's being cognizant of, do I want retweets or do I want to hopefully mitigate some flames here? And for me, right. like, I don't care about popularity. You know what I mean? Like, you've seen my Twitter, so you know that. But mm-hmm. I think that that's another really just disgusting impulse that's making everything worse. Right. It's like, you know, I grew up in eastern Washington. How am I going to point out anybody else's like, oh, they've got a lot of Nazis in that neck of the woods. Come on. You know, it's like <laughs> I was from one of the hotbeds. You know, anybody from up here can say, oh, it's just all of them over there. No, sorry. It isn't. No, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely counterproductive and stupid. I, I can rant forever about this because it reminds me of, <laughs> you know, it's all these people that talk about how, oh, the, you know, the Confederacy was the real racist, like, part of the states. Well, listen, like, I'm I'm indigenous and European descent, right? So, right. like, my whole existence here is because this country was founded right. through some real racist Right. You know, right. The real racists is everywhere. So let's not, you know, point fingers at all of this. It's, and... Yeah. It's just, it comes across differently. It's translated differently. Like, you know, there's more segregation in the North today than there is in the South for specific reasons that have to do with how 
a disgusting plantation slave-based economy mm-hmm. dealt with the proximity of black folks to white folks. And it's, it's the same racism. It's just configured differently, you know? Right. And in Seattle, they had laws that stated that, you know, black people couldn't buy houses in certain neighborhoods, you know, so oh, yeah. let's not. I think it's still <laughs> illegal for an indigenous person to enter the city limits of Boston, actually. Or it was a couple years ago. I don't know if they've removed that yet. <laughs> right. So the idea of pointing fingers at a specific region of the country and saying, ha, 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 those people, those backwards people down there, it's like, mm, this is not helpful. And class, too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Steve Bannon's not poor. Stephen Miller's not poor. Nope. Nope. And they'd rather have you talking about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They absolutely would rather have you having that fight than the idea of, gee, Bannon is like this multimillionaire. Uh-huh. This guy is absolutely loaded, yet he's the man of the people. He goes on his real America's voice, and he he absolutely is talking your language. Sure. Okay. And this is the thing that's so critical that I wish people understood more. Like, even if you're hearing, especially if you're hearing something that you want to hear, you have to pause and pick that up. Like I tell students, you know, yeah. when you hear something and you assume that you're right, the first thing that you need to do is assume you're wrong and work backwards, you know, because that's the only protection that you have from propaganda. And when you talk about Bannon speaking the language of the common people, you know, if, if people pause for a second and ask themselves, why is it that this person is claiming to speak for like the the proletariat, you know? Yeah. What is he gaining from this? Then there would be more hope of an out, you know? You would think so, yes. And I think that applies to absolutely everybody. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I think it's it's too, it's, it's just like, I think there's a tendency among what passes for the left in this country <laughs> to, you know, like condemning neo-Nazis like Adam Wathen, for example, super easy, right? Sure. It also eases your conscience and puts a separation between you and systemic white supremacy and makes you feel better. But does it do anything about the rootedness of the problem? No, absolutely not. Nope. And until people are willing to be uncomfortable in facing our own culpability in all of the systemic nonsense, nothing's going to get better, you know? So um, definitely, I can rant about that forever. I'm sorry about that little tirade. <laughs> no, but. no worries. Not at all. Not a problem. So one other thing that I kind of wanted to get into was... Not everybody stays in this movement forever, thank God. Yeah. There are people that walk away from it, and there are people who pretend to walk away from it for one reason or another. Can you explain what you think the de-radicalization process looks like for someone who's making a genuine good faith attempt to walk away from it? (sighs) Okay, that's a great question, an impossible question. I'm not smart enough to answer it. I can give you parts of what I think. But I'll start with saying I hate the phrase de-radicalization because I hate the phrase radicalization because I don't know what the hell it means and no one else does either. (laughs) You know, it's really difficult to speak to any of these like nebulous terms with any precision precisely because the categories don't have any. So what radicalization looks like is just really messy and ugly. I will say as far as like what I would say disengaging from, you know, a politically violent movement or a hate group or, or what have you. In terms of what I think it looks like, what do you mean in terms of like sincere disengagement versus like the grifters or? Yeah, yeah. Like, what do you what do you look at when you see somebody who like maybe sincere about it versus somebody who looks like they're in it for the money? Like maybe they've burned their bridges with their buddies and they want to get a new way to do things. Excellent question. I have a couple. I've, I've got like a handful of formers in my life that 
I will say I trust with my life, absolutely trust with my life, am very close to and care about an inordinate amount. But that said, if someone says that they've left a hate group, I am very skeptical in terms of my dealings with them. Um, I think that one of the first things is it's great to hear that, but it doesn't mean anything until you've seen years of work for accountability. Someone that's actually left the movement, if they've been challenged on this, you know, like prove it, whatever, I don't have to forgive you. The way that people naturally will respond and they push back against it, that's a sign that they have way more work to do before, if they say they're sincere, if they get defensive about that kind of reaction, they have a lot more work to do before they should ever be speaking publicly. Number one, that's a really good tell. Right. And you see this a lot with certain people that I won't name who are doing exactly that every time someone calls them on, I don't know, losing your phone in the toilet before the Charlottesville civil case and you couldn't recover all your data. Um, but really you're a former and you're out of movement. That's so strange. Weird. But I'm not going to name any names because obviously what oh. I'm talking about. <laughs> the defensiveness there, I think, is like pretty damn obvious. The other thing is um, the farmers, like to give you a really good um, example and one that I think might be a hopeful note for people that are listening. So I was listed on one of the Adam Waffen like kill lists, you know, a couple, several years ago. Right, right. And like I got this message on Twitter one day from somebody and I won't get into the specifics, but it was someone that is no longer associated with any of those groups. And it was an apology for what happened to me because of my inclusion on that list and the impact it had. And, you know, my initial inclination was basically like, fuck you, you know, et cetera, like someone naturally would have. But I, I kind of paused on it. I asked some people that about this account and checked right. into the background and watched what they did I had responded to the person and said, I'm glad you're out. You know, thank you for telling me this. And I kept the door kind of open, you know, because I had had people vouch for them. And anyway, a, a couple months after that initial apology, the person reached out and basically uh, said to prove that I'm sincere, I, I want to make up for the harm that I've done, like not just for to you, but I want people to not die. So I have all of this intelligence basically and I want it to go to good hands. So can I leak it to you as a sign of good faith? And I checked them out some more and it was kind of a jackpot. So I think things like that, that happen out of sight, not for any monetization or like, you know, PR whoring right, kind of right. purpose are really where you're going to see when someone that says they're a former can be trusted and when they can't. And I would say most of the formers that you see speaking publicly you know, unless they've had years under their belt, trust but verify. And it takes a lot to verify, in my opinion. But right. the biggest thing that I would say is if you ask someone that's disengaging how they expect to be forgiven or expect like targeted groups to interact with them and they get defensive, that's uh, the biggest sign that they are not where they should be even mentally if they're thinking they're sincere with themselves or if they're just like all out grifters. You know, but you'll get the defensiveness either way. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, that absolutely answers the question. That's a good piece of the idea that they still have, you know, so much work to do. Like you said, that the, they're not prepared to take that individual responsibility for their behavior yeah. and their part in all of this. The idea that mm -hmm. at some point you just, 
you have to accept that you fucked up. And you fucked yeah. up by being a part of this movement. And people are going to be very angry with you. Some people will never forgive you. Some people are never going to yeah. want anything to do with you again. And you have to be okay with that. And that's fair. That's completely fair. And then I also want to say on this, because I think for the rest of us, you know, like I, even though I'm like very skeptical when it comes to formers, I don't necessarily like welcome anyone in my life that says they quit a hate group and, you know, like, oh, great, we're best friends now. This is not going to happen. But I think that it's important for those of us that have never been in any of these groups and have been opposed to them. We do have to recognize that we need to incentivize people leaving. And so, yeah. you know, it's not conducive to say like, you were a piece of shit fascist. There's no redemption for you. I like, we should shun you forever. Like that's not going to incentivize disengagement ever. No. There's that, but there's also, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, damn near everyone well i would say everyone but i can't speak for everyone obviously there's something that matters so much to you that you would kill to defend it right like yeah some, you know be it your kids or whatever but i think that what people miss about formers and political violence in general and and groups that um you know get recruits that commit violence in the name of any ideological configuration is any of us could fall prey to that given the right circumstances yeah so it's it's kind of like a there, but for the grace of God, like if you have to keep that in mind too, and not think that you're above committing violence yourself, just because you haven't been in the situation where ideologically it looks to you like it's doing the right thing. Right. I think people have not the inability, but maybe it's so scary to say, oh, they think they're doing something moral, you know? To think that that could be you. Yeah. And like, they are motivated by love for whatever, even if, it's twisted, like in their mind, that's how they see it. And that doesn't mean that you empathize with them, but it means understanding the problem. And I think that's really tough too. Yeah. I, at one point when I was in high school, I grew up in Eastern Washington and their Aryan nations was recruiting at my high school. Oh man. And I remember they got this one kid who had been a freshman when I was a sophomore he didn't really have any friends. He was a little skateboarder kid that kind of hung around, but nobody really talked to him very much. Mm -hmm. And he came back after that summer as a sophomore with boots and braces. Man. And all of a sudden, like he had gotten full on recruited into this group. And a couple of years later, I'm up in North Spokane driving and I see these three like 13 year old kids and they're all uh -huh. wearing skinhead gear. I stopped my car. I got out of the car and I was like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Y'all are way too young to be involved in this. How did you even hear yeah. about this? And they mentioned that guy's name. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. And it never left. The idea that like, maybe if people like me had just been a little nicer or a little more outgoing or a little more like inclusive to people like him, maybe this doesn't happen. I know that's not my problem. I know that's not necessarily something I could have stopped, but it's never entirely left my thought process. Yeah. And I think that's an honest, that's an honest and brave like admission because not very many people would say that right because you're you're completely correct it's not your problem and you have no idea of like the different drivers that that right. pushed him there right but at the same time i think that that's like that that's the only response that an ethically grounded individual can have like of course you you should want to wonder could i have done something different yeah and i think that people are too quick to see what you just said as like, oh, so we should just hug the people that want to kill us because that's not the same thing. No, no. 
Because like I said, this guy goes from like just nebbish skater kid to yeah. all of a sudden white supremacist terrorist kid. And there's a lot of reasons. Like you said, we don't know what the drivers were, but we do know that at least one of the drivers for a lot of these people is loneliness and not having a group of friends, not having a group of people around them. And these people used to be very good at getting next to you and being your friend. Like, hey, you know, hey, you're part of us. You're part of our crew. Oh, yeah. Now they just do it online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. It's the same way that ISIS operated, too. Yep. The, the online ecosystem, especially why you have the explosion in extremist group affiliations after COVID, right? Everybody's right. isolated. The internet is the only place they have to socialize. So, yeah, of course, for sure. That with, like, the, yeah. the rise of, I hate the phrase disinformation, right? Because it's just... Like what defined dis- disinformation? It's yeah. propaganda, you know. Seriously, the proliferation of all that and conspiracy theories is just like the nastiest witch's brew ever. But I love that you said that because I think people don't aren't willing to to admit to those kinds of thoughts very often, and we all need to. And it doesn't mean that you're responsible for the kid joining or not joining. No, but it means like it means that there's a level of concern for another human and an empathy regardless of ideological agreement and that's sometimes i feel like that's the only thing that that has a prayer of of saving any of us you know which is not hugging tom metzger you know big big different love that you said that guy like metzger is a guy like metzger and he's he's made all of his choices and he can live with them but there are people on that side of things who are not that there are people on that side of things who can be saved at this point Still. And this is why I feel like, like regardless of what people feel about MAGA in general or, you know, the Ashley Babbitt thing or any of this, regardless of how we feel about it, how we behave publicly and engage with our political opponents is a different question entirely. And at some point, we all need to think very carefully about the end objectives that we have, right? Yeah. Do you want to pass a bullshit, like, ideological purity litmus test? Or do you want to help people not die that are innocent? Yeah. And that might mean you have to bite your tongue and not make a stupid joke on Twitter that feels really good at the time. And I'm so guilty of that myself, but it's something in the past probably five years that I've been working a lot harder on. And I wish we all would because a lot of these kids, like the kid that you're talking about, and I know nothing about him, but I'm speaking of people that I know that have gotten sucked into like the MAGA sort of side of the equation. Like they don't see who the puppeteers are. And the more you directly attack them and reject them out of hand, you're never going to get through to them. Right. You know, it's why like, like the whole, they're brainwashed is the worst approach ever. Right. You're pushing those people farther away from what could possibly be something that takes them out of that. And you're pushing them into the people who get them farther in. That's how I look at it. Yeah. And it's an extreme example, but if you ever see, like, if you if you get into looking at ISIS propaganda ever, there's a particular genre of propaganda video and photography where, for kids, they'll take kids' passports and they'll show photographs of a child's face with the passport and the passport burning. And the, and the impact of that is basically, like, I call it, I've called it, like, a... Um, a civic ritual or like an ISIS civic ritual of nationalism for their configuration. But it applies to groups like MAGA because basically the whole point of these things is eliciting a response from your opponents that there's no going back, that they will always see you through the lens of this untouchable, unforgivable thing. And then what's the incentive, you know? So that's a really key point too, I think, that you make. 
Yeah, they've got a lot of people to get themselves onto that kind of thing, especially in 2016. You know, a lot of people to Mm -hmm. say some stuff that was really going to be extremely hard to walk back and have like a normal Mm -hmm. type of, you know, existence after that. And this actually leads me into something else that, you know, we've been thinking about a lot lately and, you know, definitely concerned with is, for instance, a guy like Nick Fuentes, who mm-hmm. has an audience that a lot of people, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 48. They have a lot of people that are older, don't even realize how big that guy's audience is or that it even exists. Uh-huh. And he's got yeah. a lot of kids that are coming up hearing some of this stuff and they're making choices now with not just their rhetoric, but their actions in a lot of cases that are going to seriously limit their lives. So it really feels in a lot of ways, like the generation that's coming up, a lot of these, these young zoomers are extremely, shall we say, just bought into all of that. How worried are you about that generation coming up? Well, uh, I'll tell you that before I say how worried I am about that generation, I'm way more worried about the people that automatically say they're younger, the world is getting more diverse, the kids are okay, racists will all be dead eventually yes. because people have been spouting that garbage forever. And so on, on your point <laughs> too, I think another like a, another example I would use, I talk about this somewhat frequently, not as much recently, but like the a celebrity e-zoomer Nazis like Gypsy Crusader, yeah. you know, and, and sure. Catboy Cammy and all these guys that have really big audiences for their niche hate campaigns, but they do have a huge impact on these kids that are perpetually online. And I am pretty worried about that because there's the counterculture cachet now of basically the little edgelord shit, right? So you yeah, yeah. can't bank on the younger generation is going to be fine because you know, whatever, like races will be dead. That just, that never plays out. And now you've got the whole reactionary sort of um, underground cool cachet of being anti-establishment, right? right? So that's something to worry about. And it's on the old people, you know, that lack the familiarity with technology and all of the different platforms to see what's happening, like in the e-zoomer space with the like Gypsy Crusaders show, and how he's impacting kids, you know? Right. So they come up with this humor stuff and don't necessarily recognize that there's sincerity behind it. So, yeah, I'm pretty worried about about that generation for sure. Right, right. But I don't think that I'm smart enough to weigh in one way or the other, other than to say it would be mistaken to say the kids are all right or we're screwed. Because it's to me, it's kind of like plus a change. Right. I see so many similarities to earlier movements just happening in the digital space that I don't feel qualified to weigh in really other than to say that we can't afford to ever let our guard down with this stuff, especially right now. Yeah, definitely. So how can people support you in the work that you're doing? Oh, um, I I (laughs) try to be more empathetic to one another. Um, how to support me. I mean, I have like a Patreon. If you want to go there, that'd be awesome because I'm broke, but more importantly, much more importantly (laughs) to me, um, I would say, especially with anything on social media right now, I mean, we haven't gotten into Israel, Palestine and Gaza, but anything that evokes a heated reaction in you and caters to your political antipathies or your political preferences, as hard as it is, try to pause 
and step away and proceed from the assumption that you're wrong and instead of the assumption that you're right. Right. Because everybody is falling for all kinds of polarizing propaganda that's just getting worse and worse. So I think honestly that that's the best way that people can support me is realize that you too are probably part of the problem. And if you think that if you're pretty damn sure that you're not part of the problem, the chances are you're completely incorrect. Right. <laughs> so always, you know, that, that image of the, the meme of the, are we the baddies Nazi? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The guy yeah. in the, the yeah. Uh-huh. I wish everyone had that taped to their mirror because that's what we all need to be asking all the time. Am I the baddie? Yeah. Yeah. It's not fun, but. No, it's a, uh, it's a tough like conversation to have with yourself constantly asking like is this actually helpful oh it sucks it sucks mm-hmm. it really does but it's horrible. but you can at least your conscience is is clear if not really conflicted but i think that's the most beneficial thing any of us can do you know definitely amanda thank you i really appreciate your time tonight appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this looking forward to getting this one out oh it's been a blast Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're you're wonderful and I hope that you just keep doing what you're doing because uh-huh. this this whole environment needs you big time. Absolutely. I appreciate that so much more than I can say and like thanks for your patience with rescheduling and I know I'm not as like eloquent as I would normally hope to be. I've got a raging oh, headache so come on thanks now. for your patience with that too. And this is a blast. No so thank you for having me and like anytime I can speak to anything you're interested in, feel free. Will do. Definitely will do. You've got a lot to contribute on all of this. So take care. Take care. Have a good night. You too. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ. G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as D-N-W pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.